So, in a lot of ways, I really don't know how to start talking about this book. In the same way that you just can't talk about things that are that close to you without getting mixed up, talking about the things that are actually you instead of the things that are that important to you. Um, today we are talking about Fahrenheit 451, and I think this is probably the single most important book in my life, with the possible exception of the Bible itself. Like, this was a book that was handed to me when I was something like 10 or 11 years old, and I have reread it virtually every year since then. Um, and it is foundational to who I am. Like, I cannot separate my ideas and my convictions from the ones that Bradbury handed over to me. Um, I have almost always read this book with a certain reverence, um, an incredible respect for what Bradbury is undertaking here. And on the one hand, I think I have half the book damn near memorized. Um, just, it is as familiar as reading, like, Winnie the Pooh or, you know, The Hobbit for the umpteenth time. Something that is so close to your childhood that, um, it just, you know, flows through you. It, it's just comforting to, to walk the same lines over and over again. Um, and on the one hand, it's weird. Like, I always feel like I'm about to outgrow it. Um, that there will come a day when... I don't need to read it anymore. And yet that day never comes. Um, like, even this time, again, something like 20-plus years after I read this book for the first time, probably 15 to 20-plus readings um, since I read this book for the first time, I still find new ways to identify with it, new connections to make. This was the first year that I actually read Fahrenheit 451 and felt scared in the way that Mon Montag felt, feels scared. Like, for ever since I started reading it, I always read this as a cautionary tale. You know, be careful with your books, be careful with your ideas, because if you don't, you'll lose them. But this year, I felt like I was in Montag's position. I felt like I had lost things. That In the hustle and bustle, the, the whole, you know, feverish pace at which I've been working for the last year, um, that I had lost the ability to process these deep, meaningful texts the way that I used to. Turning 30-plus has been... I don't even know. Like, people people talk about the big age milestones, 30, 35. These are big changes in your life in some way. And, and I don't, don't think I ever actually felt some big monumental change. I never had fear of turning 30, or fear of turning 35, and I hope that that will continue and there will never be a time where I'm, like, afraid to turn 40 or afraid to turn 45. Um, but things change. You, in the process of aging, change. Um, I, nowadays, am decidedly older than I was in my 20s. I have certain aches and pains that I can predict, like clockwork. Um, it is now October, and the seasons are changing, and my shoulder, which I injured when I was a kid, is acting up again, the way that it does almost every year at this time now. Um, for the first time in my academic career, I had to actually like modify my schedule because I couldn't keep up with the pace that I was working at. I'm not in my 20s anymore. Um, since the p pandemic, I put on a lot of weight, and I'm still trying to work it off, and I my metabolism isn't just sloughing that stuff off as easily as it did before. And importantly, mentally, there's that 
point in a man's life where you kind of stop learning the way that you used to, that the brain is now fully formed, like this is an anatomical or psychological thing. And while obviously you can keep learning all of your life, and I suspect that the patterns for learning are there, at this point I'm less excited picking up a new book than I used to be. Like, I still get excited about books. I still am eager to read certain things that come out or certain books that, you know, the reputation precedes them. Um, but at this point, I'm standing at this stage of my life where the classics are largely behind me. Like, I've read Hemingway, and I've read Faulkner, and I've read most of Shakespeare's plays, and I've read most of Dickens, and I've, you know, read all of these books that are so famous and so powerful and so important. Um, there are relatively few ahead of me. And on the one hand, that's total bullshit. There's always new books. I have literally like hundreds of books in a shelf that is just reserved for stuff that I haven't read yet and that I'm excited to read. But you have to dig deeper to find them now. Um, to use the example of the science fiction novels that we're talking about here and that I've kind of been referring to throughout this lecture series, you know, I've read the big classics. I've read Asimov's Foundation series. I've read um, Heinlein's, well, three of Heinlein's big four. I've read uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, Starship Troopers, and Stranger in a Strange Land. I've read 2001 A Space Odyssey and Childhood's End by, by Arthur C. Clarke. And this is like the umpteenth time that I'm going through Ray Bradbury's oeuvre. Um, but at the same time, I'm finding writers that I'd never heard of before. Like, I'm reading Larry Niven for the first time. I'm deep diving into the, the works of Octavia Butler and being consistently surprised and impressed. Um, I'm one of these days going to get around to reading more of Samuel R. Delaney. Um, there's a whole bunch of Philip K. Dick novels that I haven't read, though I have read, like, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and The Man of the High Castle and a couple of his other, like, really famous big works. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff in the margins, and I'm discovering that as I go, but... At the same time, the things that you do connect with people over, the, the books that my college students are reading for the first time with shock and amazement, like surprise that something this old or, or this storied and famous could possibly be this meaningful, you know, I've read those books dozens of times at this point. They don't have many surprises for me left. Um... And now, as I'm sitting here in my 30s, rereading Fahrenheit 451 for the umpteenth time, I'm wondering if I'm sinking into that kind of complacency that Montag sees all around him. Um, I'm afraid for my own wife, the way that Montag is afraid for his wife, Mildred. I'm worried that she's working too hard and pushing too hard and coming home and crashing too hard and as a consequence not able to stimulate her mind the way that she used to. Which is also nonsense. Just yesterday she managed to spend her day off reading some of her uh, new book on the medieval world. Um, and I also discovered that the reason why she hasn't been reading has actually been very carefully thought out on her part. Um, but that suspicion, that fear, still lingers in a way that it didn't used to. Um, Fahrenheit 451 is not a book about censorship. 
Like, I know that everybody says that it's a book about censorship. I know that every high school classroom talks about it on censorship. I know that the newspapers all get a rise sometime, every time somebody tries to, like, ban it from the, the high school curriculum for one reason or another. Usually really superficial things, like, oh, they talk about suicide, or, oh, they use foul language from time to time, and, like, this is apparently enough to get it stricken from the records. Um, and on some level, as much as, you know, I, I totally get mad the same way that everybody else does when somebody else is like, hey, let's ban Fahrenheit 451 or remove it from the curriculum, I also feel that it is a book that you need to take in its time. Like, I did go out of my way to get a copy for my nephew now that he's in eighth grade and he's very much becoming an adult in his own right and needs to start facing the sort of difficulties and problems that adults need to be aware of. Um, but I also wouldn't recommend it to my younger nephew, who's only about eight or, or God forbid, the one who's only four. It's They're not ready for it. They can't appreciate it. It's not censorship. It's just discretion. Um, but again, as much as people get upset about it, as much as people get a rise out of seeing, you know, conservative ignorant people trying to ban the book that's all about banning books. This isn't about banning books. And Bradbury has said explicitly that it's not about banning books. Like, in multiple interviews and, and you know, in any of the many documents that I've read surrounding this book, um, he has always stressed that this is not about censorship. This is about, if anything, television. Um, Bradbury's nightmare here isn't about a government that cracks down on a society in order to prevent them from reading. You can find that book elsewhere. Um, you could read George Orwell's 1984, which obviously has a lot to say about government interference and in, in personal freedoms. Um, you could read Bradbury's own inspiration, Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon, which has a lot to say about censorship, though in a sort of backdoor kind of way. Here, what Bradbury is afraid of is not government interference. He is afraid of a public that doesn't want these things anymore. And we really need to emphasize this at the outset. In Fahrenheit 451, the dystopia that we are seeing is not a dystopia of government control or authoritarianism. This is a popular revolution. The choice to burn books is inspired by the public's disdain for them. Um, it is a public that doesn't want to think, that doesn't want to engage with this deep, meaningful material, that doesn't want to rack their brains trying to decide between multiple contradictory philosophies or courses of action. Um, this is a public that chooses to get rid of books because it will be happier for it. And this is what I find so compelling about this novel. Uh, Bradbury does not necessarily choose terribly easy targets here. Like, he does, you know, reduce Mildred to, to kind of a cipher, a, a sort of plot device. Um, many of the other characters function the same way, especially the women, which is a bit unfortunate. Um, but as much as that's the case, what Bradbury is depicting here is a world that's gone mad on its own fun. And I find that to be really potent in a way that even George Orwell's authoritarian dystopia really isn't. Um, like, don't get me wrong, authoritarian regimes are terrifying. Um, something that we are, in fact, sort of coming to terms with now that it's 2022 and we're seeing, you know, contradictory media machines spitting out their own sort of 
propaganda to a willing audience that is happy to swallow it and happy to encourage an authoritarian dictatorship. You know, we're seeing this in the wake of the January 6th insurrection in 2021. Like, we're afraid of it now, one month before the midterm elections, where people have, in fact, threatened violence to poll workers and election workers. We are, in many ways, getting close to that vision of the world. But what I have always found more frightening is Bradbury's reality, because it is, at least to me, so much closer to our own. Um, it's going to take a lot of change for our democratic government to be completely undone. Um, like, even during, as much as people were very upset by a lot of the executive orders passed by Trump during his presidency, he was frequently stopped by due process, by the checks and balances system, by the Supreme Court more often than not. Um, a dictator cannot function with the government in the United States the way that it is. But the only way that Trump gets power, the only way that our you know conspiracy theories get traction, the only way that we have all of these people clamoring for the end of democracy as we know it, is because they're not thinking because they have substituted critical consideration and careful weighing of evidence for what does the TV tell me? What does the YouTube tell me? What does the internet tell me? And honestly, as much as, you know, Bradbury's vision of, of the four parlor walls speaking to Mildred and, and her sort of love for her, quote, family, which is all fake and all plastic and all, you know, useless and, and uninformative. We get this scene at the, at the early section of the book where, like, there, there's this argument, you know, the, the, the family is talking to each other and they're yelling, like, we have to do something, we have to do something. And Montag is like, what do they have to do? And Mildred's like, I don't know. You know, these empty conflicts, the, these empty sort of threats of violence, the, this drama without substance behind it. And then finally, when it comes to this, like, fever pitch, there's this big musical cue, like trumpets and, and orchestral music, and it's loud enough to almost drown Montag out, like he sinks to his knees, and then it's over. And they're like, oh, thank God somebody did that. And then they move on to the next conflict. There's just this shallowness there, this sort of, I want the drama, but I don't want the investment kind of behavior. And as much as that is frightening, as much as Bradbury is kind of presenting this, this hollow world that he, he truly fears here in the 1950s, I can't help but think that there's a parallel in the way that we engage with the internet today, that we just sort of passively let all of these... TikTok videos and Facebook posts and, and Instagram pictures just wash over us. Um, we don't want to invest an hour or two into an actual narrative, like even one of the Hollywood cellulite narratives, much less, you know, investing nine, ten hours into a full novel with that has been carefully thought through and that requires effort on the part of the reader to engage with. Um, I think... A lot of the time, we want the emotion, we want the gut reaction, we want to be manipulated. We want the cheap alternative to actual careful emotional catharsis. Um, that's what frightens me, and that's what makes me think that we are 
closer to Bradbury's dystopia than many of the others we encounter. Um, and I've heard people talk about this, you know, in the, the wake of the, the popular show The Handmaid's Tale based on Margaret Atwood's novel. I remember lots of people who typically I would not have expected this from saying things like, oh, we're, we're heading into this world. It looks, it looks very close to our own. And I admittedly haven't watched the show at my wife's recommendation. She was like, it's very overrated. I don't know if that's true or not, because I haven't engaged, because I don't have a lot of time for watching TV. Um, but I can't help but think that, like, this is, this is Baby's first dystopia reaction. Like, as a student of this, of this genre, having read, you know, some of, like, uh, the utopian novels of the 20th century, the sort of things like Erewhon or, or, uh, Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy, or A Modern Utopia by H.G. Wells, much less the 20th century classic dystopias like Zamiatin's We, or um, Brave New World by Huxley, or 1984 by Orwell, or of course Fahrenheit 451 by Bradbury. You know, there have been many, many works devoted to this kind of dystopian image of the future. Like, even 10, 15 years ago when Suzanne Collins did uh, The Hunger Games, you know, the dystopian movement in, in young adult fiction just, like, took off overnight. And we had something like dozens of novels doing this, you know, kind of superficial dystopian worldview, um, some of which were better than others. Like, The Hunger Games was passable, but there were a lot of knockoffs that were kind of trash. And at the same time, there were works like... Uh, Oh, Patrick Ness's uh, Chaos Walking series, which I absolutely loved. Um, there's clearly a sort of discussion about this happening right now. There's a certain amount of fear surrounding the, the threat of this dystopian, you know, society that we see in front of us or that perhaps we see that we are living in now. Um, but as much as so many of those dystopias are kind of ham-handed and, and unsubtle in the way that they present their their authoritarian regimes or their, you know, like, bleak outlooks on, on what government interference or alternatively, like Bradbury, you know, what the public ultimately chooses to get rid of in the wake of these changes, I always find Bradbury's the most compelling because... I know the people who don't have time to read. I know that our society is pushing people faster and faster into their jobs and into their responsibilities and literally keeping them from thinking, from feeling depressed, from trying to work out their own problems. Um, it's a complicated, multi-layered, like many interlocking pieces sort of thing to talk about, but I really feel that people are dissuaded from thinking, and increasingly our culture is very willing to say, then stop, then don't think. Um, here, just take some drugs, or here, just, you know, watch this video, or here, you know, Netflix is conjuring up yet another series to keep you from sleeping at night. Um, we are doing our damnedest as a culture to prevent ourselves from having to deal with the long, slow waiting periods that used to be such an important part of life. And as a consequence, we're unequipped to deal with looking at ourselves in the mirror and asking the big, meaningful questions. Um, I think my students are are very unequipped to deal with these things. I think 
my peers are very unequipped to deal with these things. I think that our society, like big picture, the government and the intellectuals and so on, are very unequipped to deal with these issues. Bradbury, as much as he kind of fails to represent them in a way that is concrete or terribly meaningful, as much as it is this issue him itself that he is most concerned with rather than any of the you know big problems that the world is facing, as much as he misses a lot of what I think is truly profound and trying to sort of guide us towards a, a better way of life, he absolutely nails the the issue, the the problem, the fact that we aren't willing to engage with life, that we aren't willing to dig deeper, that we just want to be entertained constantly, non-stop, 24-7, and that we will do virtually anything um, to avoid wrestling with the existential questions that define who a person is. Um, I think that's a huge problem. I think that's, again, the foundation of many of the problems our society faces today, and I have no doubt in my mind that it will be the root of the problems that society faces in the future. I mean, take any of today's internet buzzword issues, you know, talk about climate change, talk about, you know, the abortion debate, talk about the fact that our democracy is under threat, and at root, you will almost always find an unwillingness to face the actual fears and problems that we have. Um, you will find people who have been sort of hijacked into thinking certain ways or who refuse to do the things that are necessary because it is easier to just turn on another, you know, streaming service, watch another TikTok video, and just sink into that obliviousness. So what is Bradbury talking about here? Like, I've, I've had a 20-minute preface to just sort of talk about my feelings and, and to sort of introduce this novel and to talk about its relevance today and talk about my own sort of personal relationship with it. What is he doing? What are, what are his motivations? Um, and this itself, like, as much as I know this book cover to cover and could probably say that I've memorized huge passages of it without even meaning to, I also know its story by heart at this point. Like, I've read so many interviews and I've read so many, like, secondary uh, writings about it. I've read Bradbury's own introductions and, and comments about the subject. The Fahrenheit 451 was originally conceived as a short story called The Pedestrian. Because once upon a time, uh, Ray Bradbury was going for a walk, apparently in the middle of the night. And while walking, he was stopped by a policeman who wanted to know what he was doing. And Bradbury, being Bradbury, got rather irate and was very upset at the fact that anyone would consider him to be doing something wrong by just walking around. Um, what that meant to him was that there was a sort of fear of people doing things that weren't normal, um, that weren't predicted and prescribed by our social norms and our sort of conformist attitude. And here in the 40s and 50s, yeah, that was kind of a big deal. Um, the world that Bradbury talked about was the one that is famous for its conformist suburban expectations and, you know, the, the keeping up with the Joneses and very much repressing anything that seemed to smack of unconformity, of, of being out of line. 
Um, everybody was supposed to behave the same way, and it was a shockingly conservative time. Um, this is something that Bradbury is not alone in thinking. Like P.K. Dick frequently writes the same sort of stories about the same sort of problems in the same sort of era. Um, Bradbury just comes at it from his own experiences. In this case, the fact that Bradbury himself has never been a conformist, you know, the very, the, the epitaph, the, the opening, uh, the opening quote here is Juan Ramon Jimenez's, if they give you ruled paper, write the other way. Um, Bradbury encourages us, has always encouraged us to think differently and to act differently as well. So if you go walking in the middle of the night, why should this be questioned? What law was he breaking besides the sort of quiet, unwritten law of this is how people are supposed to behave? So he wrote a short story, because he's a writer, and that's how he gets back at people who irritate him. He writes a short story, and in the short story, it's about this guy who, like him, gets arrested for just taking a walk, um, for doing something that is not normal. Now, this itself evolved into Clarice McClellan. McClellan is the character who is apparently the 17-year-old and crazy girl who Montag meets as he's coming home from work one day, and she is just walking. She is walking, she is smelling the night air, she is sort of wistful and then reminds Montag of his, her own sort of childish experiences. She plays this game where you rub a dandelion under your neck and if the underside of your neck is now yellow, then it means that you're in love. And if it doesn't, well, that's too bad. Apparently Montag isn't in love after all. What, on the one hand, Clarice is just being a 17-year-old girl. A particularly wistful, maybe we might even call her Manic Pixie Dream Girl in our own sort of world of tropes today, and that wouldn't necessarily be wrong. She is definitely a cipher. She isn't necessarily a romantic interest. We should definitely draw the line there, like Truffaut kind of gets that one wrong. Um, but at the very least, she is real. She means something to Montag, and his interaction with her bothers him, especially because this is directly contrasted against his interaction with his own wife. As soon as he meets Clarice for the first time, he goes home and finds out that Mildred has essentially attempted suicide. That she took all the sleeping pills in her bottle at once. And as Montag realizes this, he hears the bombers flying overhead, tearing the night sky apart, and he has effectively a panic attack. He calls the doctor, they pump poor Mildred's stomach and give her a blood transfusion, something that is so mechanized at this point that they just do this like dozens of times in a single night. And Montag sits with this realization. He finds himself faced with two contrasting visions of reality. That of Clarice McClellan, who is very much in the moment, very much in knowing her own place and trying to explore and engage with the world, but who is also sort of excommunicated by the society that she dwells in. She is an outcast. She is psychologically evaluated. She is questioned and interrogated for her behavior, and she is, like, jeered at and made fun of by her, by her peers. And then on the other hand, we have Mildred, who is absolutely 100% the, like, emblematic wife of this society. She behaves exactly the way that she is supposed to behave. She has always got the television on, and when she doesn't have the TV on, she is 
she has her seashell radio in her ear. She is never paying attention to anything else but her own sort of insular world. And her conversation, her interactions with Montag and the other women that she spends time with are all indicative of how disengaged she actually is from reality. She is constantly one foot in this fictional, media-driven, media-saturated, made-up world, and on the other hand, her one other foot is trying to turn that made-up world into her own reality. All that she cares about, all that she wants, is more of that. But at the same time, Montag notices that there's some deep part of her, some part of her that she's not even in communication with, that is what drives her to try and kill herself. On some level, Mildred is deeply, profoundly unhappy. And the only way that Mildred can deal with this unhappiness is by concocting this fiction for herself, this elaborate unreality, this constant interaction with what the media provides to keep her from realizing how unhappy she actually is. So Montag starts asking himself questions. Is he in fact happy? Is she in fact happy? Does he in fact love her? And if not, then what is he doing? What is all of this about? How is it that this girl can upset his contentedness so easily? Montag is, in essence, starting to think. Now, it's important to note that this is particularly problematic for Montag. He is a fireman. And in Bradbury's second version of this story, like going from the pedestrian to the fireman, this is the sort of conflict that he engineers and begins to explore. Namely, what happens if the guy who is responsible for keeping this society upright, who goes out of his way to burn the books and keep the media, you know, simplistic and, and superficial, what if he starts getting ideas? What if he starts wondering what about the world that he is destroying? What about those books that he is burning? And one of the things that Bradbury emphasizes throughout this book is that the act of destruction is itself beautiful. Like, we start off with Montag burning books and we get this lovely description that is both like haunting and, and poetic where, you know, he emphasizes, as the first line tells us, it was a pleasure to burn. It was a special pleasure to see things eaten, to see things blackened and changed. With the brass nozzle in his fists, with this great python spitting its venomous kerosene upon the world, the blood pounded in his head, and his hands were the hands of some amazing conductor, playing all the symphonies of blazing and burning to bring down the tatters and charcoal ruins of history. With his symbolic helmet numbered 451 on his stolid head, and his eyes all orange flame with the thought of what came next, he flicked the igniter and the house jumped up in a gorging fire that burned the evening sky red and yellow and black. He strode in a swarm of fireflies. He wanted above all, like the old joke, to shove a marshmallow on a stick in the furnace while the flapping pigeon-winged book books died on the porch and lawn of the house while the books went up in sparkling whirls and blew away on a wind turned dark with burning. Montag grinned, the fierce grin of all men singed and driven back by flame. There's a profound physical reaction here, a lust. 
you know, just as Mildred's world is one of fiction, of, of these, you know, extremely superficial conflicts and televised dramas and, you know, nonsense plots, Montag's own world is driven by this kind of aesthetic immersion in destruction itself. He gets this deep satisfaction from destruction, from this act of burning. It is euphoric. It is titillating. It is something that carries him away in the same way that, like, we have a certain amount of excitement just being near a bonfire. We want to see things burn. We are fascinated, just sort of struck by flame. It's easy to stare into the burning and just be entranced by it. Montag knows this feeling well because that's his entire life. And on the one hand, I find it really a fascinating image, just because Bradbury does paint it as something beautiful. You know, being lost in thought in front of a fireplace is itself kind of both exactly what's happening to Montag and also exactly what's not happening. Like, I can think of many times that I have just sat in front of a fireplace, staring into the fire, thinking those deep thoughts that Montag apparently can't think. But at the same time, what Montag is using the fire for is the same thing that Mildred is using her TV shows. He is distracting himself. He is not engaging with his own reality. He is not dealing with his own problems. He can't recognize his own unhappiness. Which is why when the men come with the snake that goes down uh, Mildred's mouth and into her stomach and starts pumping out all of the poison and pumping in new fresh blood, that Montag is so horrified that he realizes that there is this deepness, this meaning in his life that he's been ignoring. And that you do so, you ignore it by at your own peril. As much as fire is destructive and is presented as an enemy in this text, it is also something that is powerful, liberating. It is something that can, in fact, help the process of reflection. It depends on how we use it and what we do with it. Now, Montag, again, is presented here as a man sort of in his late 20s or late 30s who's coming into his own sort of self-recognition, realizing that the world that he lives in is a dangerous one for reasons that he doesn't fully understand or explain, and that he's starting to be afraid of. And the sort of looming horror hanging over us throughout this entire novel is the fact that at any moment, war is going to break out. Like, Bradbury refers to it fairly often, but kind of in the margins of the text. Nobody talks about it. Montag doesn't even dwell on it very often when he's thinking, though he does dwell on it more and more as the book goes on. But we hear references to it frequently. You know, as Montag is stumbling about in the dark and realizes that Mildred has tried to take her own life, that's when the bombers fly overhead, and he starts to wonder if they've ever not been there. Um, while he's at the firehouse uh, talking to Captain Beatty, um, we hear the broadcast over the radio that war is going to be declared at any moment. And on the one hand, we're not given a lot of opportunity to reflect on this, to think about this, to dwell on the parallels to our own world. But obviously here in Bradbury's time, we're in the Cold War. Nuclear war is this constant threat hanging over everyone's head. Not a hot war, one that is in progress and that fighting is going on at any moment, but a cold one. 
one that could break out at any moment, one that threatens at every, at every moment. And importantly, as we're told at the back half of our reading for today, this is not the first time that atomic war has happened. Um, like, Mildred and Montague actually recognize that, you know, they've won multiple atomic wars at this point. Um, which brings us to what the world is doing right now. Which, you know, this is a dystopian novel, we have lots of questions about this. Like, we're given such an evocative opening here. Um, Montague interacting with Clarice after burning the books. Uh, Montague coming into his own home and, and sort of realizing that his wife has tried to kill herself. You know, as much as Bradbury has, in fact, concocted this rich dystopian world with its own sort of lore and history, it's so secondary for Bradbury to the personal problems that each of these characters interact with. Um, Bradbury writes in one of his, his interviews about this that he's always been a character-centric writer. Um, the characters told him what they want to do. Um, and I think that's part of what makes Bradbury so powerful. You know, today we admire works of speculative fiction because they are intricate worlds crafted by whoever made them. You know, we, we are the inheritors of Frank Herbert and, and J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, we love the work of something, somebody like Brandon Sanderson, who can spin his entire universe together with this elaborate sort of um, set of systems and rules, his own metaphysics. Bradbury is kind of thinking about his world building as a secondary element, but it's also one of the things that we find most compelling about his work. But what makes his work so compelling, what makes the world so compelling, is that the characters themselves are compelling. You know, we're not drawn into this dystopian world with elaborate explanations the way that Brave New World or 1984 tend to open. We're drawn into it because Montague comes home from a satisfying day at work, meets someone he didn't expect to meet who bothers him on some deep level, and then walks into his own home to find that things are terribly, terribly wrong that he has been ignoring some creeping horror that has been lurking in his own home for many, many years, and that really he is profoundly, deeply unhappy, and just somehow able to ignore that deep unhappiness. And what's worse is that it only gets worse as things go on. When Mildred wakes up the next morning, she has a sore throat, but is totally unwilling to acknowledge what she did the night before. Um, to the point that Montag actually considers the possibility that maybe she was so dopey she just took two pills and then two pills and then two pills on and on into the night. But Mildred denies it. No, I never would have done that, even though the evidence is obvious. Montag goes back to work and everything is supposedly normal. Nothing has changed there. Yes, we get the radio broadcasts of the threat of war, and the mechanical hound starts to misbehave, it seems, starts to react to Montag's own presence, and the mechanical hound itself, I suppose, we'll have to devote some time to. Um, but things haven't changed, and that's what make, what bothers Montag even more. Now, 
consistently he expects to find Clarice at home, and he does. Like, we get multiple interactions between him and Clarice, and we even get this sort of montage-esque passage where we get to see multiple weeks transpire, and, like, these sort of brief snippets of interaction between Montag and Clarice, Montag and the Fireman, so on and so forth, until finally Clarice is gone. And we don't know why, and we don't know how. And if Montag was bothered by Clarice showing up, he is bothered even more by her disappearance. Add on to that the fact that the next time that he goes to burn things, the next time that they get a call at the firehouse, we find out that the woman who owns the household hasn't been carried away by the police like they usually have. Again, notice Montag is happy in his work specifically because he is ignoring the reality he is ignoring the human cost of burning a home with all of its books. He has not had to face the fact that people's lives are being undone here by their work. That has all been taken care of him beforehand by some other arm of the bureaucracy. Now he is, in fact, confronted with it. Now there is a woman standing there who, in fact, treasures these books, cares about them, and refuses to leave her house despite the fact that they're planning to burn it, and in fact goes so far as to commit suicide by immolation when she chooses to strike the match that sets the whole thing aflame. And in the process of all this, Montag, whether intentionally or unintentionally, steals a book, carries it away like, secrets it in his jacket and goes home with it. And we find later that it turns out that this is actually the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament. The whole thing. And for that matter, when he talks to Professor Faber later on in the book and asks, are there any extant copies of the Bible, Faber responds, no. And, as we'll find out in our next reading, Faber is not lying. Faber is not just trying to, to you know, impress uh, poor Montag with his allegiance to the system. This may very well be the last copy of the Bible in America today. Which is itself really striking to me. Like, again... As much as, you know, there is all this sort of foo-foo-rah every time somebody tries to ban Fahrenheit 451 in schools or something, you know, again, usually because of the suicide scenes or alternatively because of, like, the coarse language, which, you know, a couple dams and hells probably should not be enough to upset your average high schooler. Um, as much as this book is usually sort of held up as, as this, you know, dangerous work, potentially worth banning, I always find it really interesting that Bradbury's sort of central text that he is defending here, the one that is so endangered at this point in time, is in fact the Bible. Bradbury is talking about a secular dystopia here, um, as contrasted with something like Margaret Atwood's very religiously motivated dystopia, a dystopia that is very much motivated by bad interpretations of Christian faith. What Bradbury is talking about here is a threat to the Christian faith, um, a threat presented against it, that Christianity in all of its forms is itself thinking too deeply for the contemporary secularized all I want is happiness and entertainment world. And this I find at the same time kind of really compelling to me personally and also really discordant with our own experience today. 
discordant because, again, so many people identify the problems with our contemporary society with a blind allegiance to Christian dogma. Um, all those evangelical Christians who consistently re vote Republican and who get mad about people who choose alternative lifestyles and who sort of violently and without thinking about it um, reject anything that strikes as unusual or unnormal. Um, Christians today are sort of recognized as the bastion of a conformist lifestyle like the one that Bradbury talks about in Fahrenheit 451. But at the same time, what I find so striking about this particular discordance is the fact that most of the Christians I know who do insist upon this kind of conformity, who do, you know, insist that nonconformist lifestyles are to be done away with, and who do sort of blindly follow the Republican ticket as much as they follow whatever they understand the Bible to be, they understand their Christianity superficially. Like, maybe they'll read the Bible every now and again, but their primary engagement is with this sort of pablum Christian broadcast, the Christianity of televangelists and of mass churches in the Deep South or in the Midwest, churches that kind of have a consistent message that is generally upbeat and, you know, sort of popularizing Jesus, but also at the same time frequently unwilling to face a lot of the ugliness that is at the heart of the Bible. Um, that is sort of in stark contrast with the, the pulpit pounders of the Puritan era, who do not face the kind of dark, um, the dark worldview that Christianity kind of has to contend with. These are people who take their ethics along with their sermons and don't bother to go any farther than, than understanding it at this level, who don't go back to the text to reevaluate their worldview, but instead assume that the same people who preach the Bible are people who they can trust in every other dimension of their lives, who don't take responsibility for their Christianity in short, and therefore are guilty of majorly distorting that Christianity. Montag is facing the Bible without any other context for it. And even as he's trying to read it, like that scene on the, on the train where he's trying to read the Sermon on the Mount, you know, that's the passage that we're referring to when he is constantly trying to say, the lilies of the field, consider the lilies of the field, they toil not, neither do they spin. This is really potent just because he's trying to get this very basic Christian tenet and can't because it is being overridden by this popular catchy jingle for, you know, this apparently like toothpaste or tooth whitener that is broadcasted over the speakers of, of the subway. And this scene especially, like, I don't think there is a scene in the whole of literature that I can identify with this viscerally than Montag sitting on a train trying to read a book and being unable to because of this stupid, banal, crap, Muzak industrial advertising. Like, for every time that I've sat in a goddamn doctor's waiting room or, you know, waiting for my car to get its oil changed or whatever, and I am sitting there trying to read something, anything, like, even something as superficial or cheap as, you know... A, 
like trashy fantasy novel and being unable to concentrate because there's a television blaring in the background or because some crap music is playing over the speakers way too loud or because somebody's talking on a phone or because somebody's nowadays watching a YouTube video without headphones, you know, that like hits me on this deep personal level. And I don't know if it's because of Bradbury making this scene so evocative, or because Truffaut got this scene so right in the movie, um, or because I just personally have had this happen so many times. Like, even as a kid, I would try to read, and my mom would, like, be dragging me all over, you know, stores doing, quote, errands, and I, it would just drive me nuts. Um, there's nothing necessarily, like honorable about this. I definitely do not want to paint myself as like a crusader searching for the truth in the face of, you know, this overwhelming, you know, superficiality. Like, that's not what's happening there. But Bradbury taps into this, this annoyance, this irritation, this sort of gut-level frustration with trying to do something that is meaningful to you and being unable to because of something that is supposedly least common denominator meaningful to everyone. That's what frustrates me. That's what I find so irritating. That's what kills me every time I'm stuck in a doctor's office for 45 minutes trying to read a book while some stupid reality TV show is playing too loud in order to keep everybody calm and quiet and patient. And that, that is the reason. Like, this is, this is actual researched scientific data that, you know, this is why doctors' waiting rooms and hospitals and, you know, auto parts shops and, and you name it do this. Like, you play the music, you show the TV to keep everyone calm during an excessive waiting period, something that generally makes people really frustrated and irritable. You leave these people alone with their thoughts for too long, and they get grumpy. They get violent, especially in something like a waiting room uh, for, you know, a very expensive car or for the health and care of a loved one. People get mad. They start picking fights with receptionists. Um, they do, in fact, get violent. Um, and so you play something that is so unthreatening, so unchallenging, so banal and so, like, catchy or pointless or stupid that it keeps everyone from getting mad. You know, you don't have to worry about somebody being offended. Like, you, the last thing you want is, you know, some lady saying, I don't want to, my kids to see this television show, or I don't want my kids listening to this music. So you just make something that is so unthreatening, so completely, like, unchallenging, that it does keep everybody happy, keep everybody from becoming violent, while also not making anybody mad for the sake of the thing that you're doing. Like, this is calculated. And... On the one hand, I get the idea. I, I get why they do this. I, I get why, you know, I'm sitting in the waiting room watching some kind of, like, you know, house flipper or renovation reality show instead of, you know, friggin', like, The Wire or something. Um, I get that. I understand it. I, I see the reasoning behind it. But it is still so frightening about our culture that this is what we come to that we are so often surrounded by people who we have no knowledge of, that we are constantly sort of brought on this assembly line factory floor approach to customer service or the service industry generally, that 
We don't know who is helping us. We don't know who is sitting in the waiting room. We don't want them to get violent. We don't want them to pitch a fit. We don't want them to, to you know, behave erratically. And we can't predict what will make them behave erratically. So we literally have an industry surrounding this sort of complacency, making people just deal, ignore their thoughts, not pay attention to what's going on around them, and just veg. That's frightening. Like, that's that's horrifying. Um, as much as there have been many, many problems in the 19th century and earlier, this was generally not one of them. Controlling a population on a broad scale like this is an invention of the 19th century because it didn't need to exist up until that point. Like, even in major urban centers up until the 19th century, this technology did not exist. It's why all those revolutions happened. Um, at the early part of the 19th century. But there just weren't enough people in the same place at the same time to warrant fear. Like, generally, you knew who you were contending with at virtually all times. Like, you knew who the major rabble-rousers and, you know, Renaissance Venice were going to be every year. And you assassinated them frequently, because that's how you dealt with the problem. Um... But today, we're constantly surrounded by people who we don't know and are frightened of on some basic instinctual level. And that fear is kind of what Bradbury is writing about here. He is responding to the fear of himself, a society that is afraid of a man who walks around and thinks. He is responding to a society that is very determined to sort of quash that behavior to put it down, to supplant instead some sort of conformist predictability by way of advertising, by way of television, by way of mass media. And today it is the same thing with the internet and with streaming services and all of this other stuff. Like, honestly, I, as much as, you know, Disney does a lot of good stuff and creates a lot of decent artwork that does, in fact, turn out to be thought-provoking or meaningful. I don't want to accuse them of just turning this out. Disney is also a master of the completely non-threatening, completely, you know, banal art for just keeping everybody calm and safe and making money consistently. They have been doing this for decades now, and they are masters at it. And I can't help but think that Bradbury would find the contemporary disnified culture to be terrifying in this same way. But let's talk about the world. We do get a prolonged passage here, and I do want to actually explore it in some depth here. Um, namely, once, Brad, or once Montag refuses to come to work after he's stolen the book, after he's now afraid, after he's seriously thinking about investigating the books that he has, in fact, stashed, over the years, it seems that this is not just a new, you know, development for Montag, but he actually has his own sort of, like, secret miniature library hiding behind the ventilation. Um, now we he decides to stay at home so he can study, to try and fix this life that has been so messed up. Um, he decides that if, in fact, everything is this broken, if he is this profoundly unhappy and Mildred is this profoundly unhappy, then maybe the books offer a solution, a way out. And at exactly this time, Captain Beatty, the head of the fire department, shows up. Just out of the blue, out of some sort of preternatural sense of what Montag is going through. And that's definitely how it is framed here. 
Um, and then the captain shows up. So, first, Montag doesn't want to deal with the captain. He is afraid of the captain. He knows that Beatty can convince him to come back to work, to sort of shut down his thinking. Apparently, the captain is just expert at this. But Captain Beatty is more than just the guy making the happiness machine keep running, even though he frames his own job that way. Beatty knows his role in this society. Beatty is smarter than he seems to be, and that's what makes him so dangerous. Like, he is one of my all-time favorite literary villains, because he is so erudite, and he is so convincing, and he doesn't have this superficial, empty philosophy like Montag and Mildred themselves do. Beatty is equipped. Beatty knows the advantages of the society that he is supporting, and he knows its history. Like, he gives us this long conversation, this long insight into his own sort of perspective, and I just love it, top to bottom. Um, the sort of kind of banal evil that Bradbury is propping up with, in this case, erudition and intelligence. And we'll see Beatty give another long series of speeches later, at the end of book two, when he confronts Montag and sort of goads him uh, at the firehouse as a sort of contrast to Faber's upbringing. So I, I really do want to, like, dive into this section and just read through it and talk about it, because it just gives us such a great view of the world that Bradbury has concocted here. Um, so Beatty shows up at the door, and Mildred is sick and tired of all this nonsense from Montag about being sick. Mildred wants that fourth TV put in, so she just wants him to go to work and do his job and leave her alone and quit asking all these ridiculous questions and quit talking about that woman and her books and how she burned herself and what apparently these books mean to her. Like, Mildred just wants to shut off her brain, turn on the TV, and ignore all of this again because that's who she is and that's what she does. So she lets him in. Tell him yourself, she says. She ran a few steps this way, a few steps that, and stopped, eyes wide when the front door speaker called her name, softly, softly, Mrs. Montag, Mrs. Montag, someone here, someone here, Mrs. Montag, Mrs. Montag, someone's here. Montag hides the book, and Beatty walks into the room. Shut the relatives up, said Beatty, looking around at everything except Montag and his wife. This time Mildred ran. The yammering voices stopped yelling in the parlor. This is a fascinating contrast. Like, Montag literally asked Mildred moments ago to please turn the voices down. She goes into the other room, does nothing, we're told, and comes back out. Montag clearly has no authority in his own house. But Beatty walks into the room, snaps one line, and Mildred jumps to attention. Notice, too, that Beatty looks around at everything except Montag and his wife. You get this sense, like, I've seen this happen so many times, like, people in invited to your house for the first time, and they immediately start, like, gauging your, your position in society. Like, they're immediately looking at your bookshelf, or they're looking at your TV, or they're looking at what you have hanging on the wall. Like, there's this sort of instinctual need to understand the people based on the shit that they own. Um, Beatty apparently does this. Like, he walks in, he doesn't look at Montag, he doesn't look at Mildred, they are not important to him. He looks at their stuff. He tries to assess who they are based on what they own. Captain Beatty sat down in the most comfortable chair with a peaceful look on his ruddy face. He took time to prepare and light his brass pipe and puff out a great smoke cloud. Just thought I'd come by and see how the sick man is. How'd you guess? 
this point, Montag hasn't told Beatty that he's sick, but Beatty knows. He saw Montag's face after the burning yesterday. He knows that Montag is going to fake sick. Beatty smiled his smile, which showed the candy pinkness of his gums and the tiny candy whiteness of his teeth. I've seen it all. You were going to call for a night off. Montag sat in bed. Well, said Beatty, take the night off. He examined his eternal matchbox, the lid of which said guaranteed one million lights in this igniter, and began to strike the chemical match abstractedly. Blow out, strike, blow out, strike, speak a few words, blow out. He looked at the flame. He blew. He looked at the smoke. When will you be well? Tomorrow. The next day, maybe. First of the week. Beatty puffed his pipe. Every fireman sooner or later hits this. They only need understanding, to know how the wheels run. Need to know the history of our profession. They don't feed it to rookies like they used to. Damn shame. Puff. Only fire chiefs remember it now. Puff. I'll let you in on it. Mildred fidgeted. Beatty took a full minute to settle himself in and think back for what he wanted to say. When did it all start, you asked, this job of ours? How did it come about? Where? When? Well, I'd say it really got started around about a thing called the Civil War, even though our rulebook claims it was founded earlier. The fact is, we didn't get along well until photo photography came into its own. Then, motion pictures in the early 20th century. Radio, television, things began to have mass. Notice... Beatty doesn't point to any of the classic examples of, you know, censorship throughout history here. Like, we're not talking about Savonarola and the Bonfire of the Vanities, or the Inquisition, or, you know, any number of famous, like, book-burning sessions throughout history. He points to the creation of mass media, the invention of photography, which is, again, Bradbury letting us know that that's what he's really talking about here. Again, notice things began to have mass, kind of has this double meaning here. One ironic and one very much not ironic. Beattie doesn't point to the fact that this is mass dissemination, mass distribution, even though that's the word he uses. What he points to is weight, mass as a sort of gravity, a sort of pull, i.e. a kind of what we would think of as profundity. You know, when we talk about a movie that is weighty, we are talking one that has profound implications, one that makes us think. And yet, Beatty is about to line up this, uh, this discussion of, okay, what about the things that don't? So Bontag sat in his bed, not moving. And because they had mass, they became simpler, said Beatty. Once, book appealed to a few people, here, there, everywhere. They could afford to be different. The world was roomy. But then the world got full of eyes and elbows and mouths. Double, triple, quadruple population. Films and radios, magazines, books leveled down to a sort of paste-putting norm. Do you follow me? So now we have a population explosion. The increase of urbanization. Now, thanks to medical technology, people and the population is growing by leaps and bounds. Over the course of the 19th century, we're going from... a to, from a world of maybe several millions to a world full of people, a world verging on billions of human beings. Beatty peered at the smoke pattern he had put out on the air. Picture it. 19th century man with his horses, dogs, carts, slow motion. Then in the 20th century, speed up your camera. Books cut shorter, condensations, digests, tabloids. Everything boils down to the gag, the snap ending. So now we don't have time for these things. The world is full now. 
The world used to be roomy, now it is full. And now we have this new technology in place. First photography, then the cinema. Films and radios, magazines. We have this mass marketing, and now there's too much stuff. We need to get our information faster. We need to be able to process it more quickly because there's so much more of it out there. This, the world being crowded isn't just about bumping elbows with people. It's about bumping elbows with their ideas all the time. We are engaging with a wide variety of people all clamoring to be heard. So, rather than listen to everything they have to say, what we need are condensations, digests, tabloids. Everything boils down to the gag, the snap ending. Snap ending, Mildred nodded. Classics cut to fit 15-minute radio shows, then cut again to fill a two-minute book column, winding up at last as a 10- or 12-line dictionary resume. I exaggerate, of course. The dictionaries were for reference. But many were those whose sole knowledge of Hamlet, you know the title certainly, Montag, it's probably only a faint rumor of a title to you, Mrs. Montag, whose sole knowledge, as I say, of Hamlet was a one-page digest in a book that claimed, Now at last you can read all the classics. Keep up with your neighbors. Do you see? Out of the nursery, into the college, and back to the nursery. There's your intellectual pattern for the past five centuries or more. So a certain amount of weight still hangs over the classics. You know, we're still teaching Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet in high schools. We're still insisting that kids read these big important books like the Iliad and the Odyssey. But importantly, we don't have the time to read these big important books. You know, you want to be known for knowing about Hamlet. It's still a mark of, you know, gentility, of, of taste and sophistication, but you don't want to actually take the time to do it. So instead, we just read the digest, the one-page description of the novel and its events. You know, like all of my students who prefer the Cliff's Notes over the actual reading of the text. They don't want to have read the Iliad. They don't think it offers anything to them. What they want is to have me, their professor, think they read the Iliad. What they want is the credit for having read the Iliad. What they want is to be able to strike up a conversation with an intelligent person and be able to speak intelligently about the Iliad and its themes and its ideas. That's what's important. Not Hamlet, but the credit for Hamlet. Speed up the film, Montag. Quick. Click, pick, look, I, now, flick, here, there, swift, pace, up, down, in, out, why, how, who, what, where, eh? Uh, bang, smack, wallop, bing, bang, boom. Digest, digests. Digest, digest, digests. Politics? One column, two sentences, a headline. Then, in midair, all vanishes. Whirl man's mind around about so fast under the pumping hands of publishers, exploiters, broadcasters, that the centrifuge flings off all unnecessary, time-wasting thought. Now that we have boiled down the classics to the credit, we can successfully get rid of the classics. Now we can streamline our movies to being just the action, just the excitement, just that visceral emotional reaction. 
We don't want to discuss politics. We want the very carefully summarized version. Just one column, just two sentences, or better yet, just the clickbait headline at the bottom of the page telling us everything we need to know about Ukraine, about Putin, about, you know, whatever the Roe v. Wade situation is, about whatever the most recent vote is. We aren't going to read even the article. We just want the headline. We just want to be informed enough to engage in the conversation and to be able to say something smart and witty or maybe something that is just a banal observation about what's going on around us. We want to be reconfirmed that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and there's nothing we can do about it, or alternatively, that the world is fine and we can just successfully go on ignoring it for the rest of our lives. That's what we want. That's what Beity is promising here, and that's what the world ultimately bends over backwards to provide. The broadcasters fling off all the time-wasting thought. School is shortened, Beity continues. Discipline relaxed. Philosophies, histories, languages dropped. English and spelling gradually, gradually neglected. Finally, almost completely ignored. Life is immediate. The job counts. Pleasure lies all about after work. Why learn anything save pressing buttons, pulling switches, fitting nuts and bolts? Beatty describes that now the world doesn't need these things. Thought, having been removed from the equation, is also being removed from the necessity for life. You don't need a whole bunch of people with high advanced degrees going around doing stuff. No, what we need are people working the factory floor. What we need are people who are able to just fix machinery. What we need are people who are studying the robots that take care of all the other stuff for us. We don't need an educated public anymore, in short. And what's more, the public doesn't want to take the time for its own education. They don't see any worth in spending all, these all this time reading these things when they would much rather have that visceral emotional reaction. Now, all the while Beatty talks, Mildred is starting to clean up the house out of this sort of nervous energy. And importantly, she is coming over to Montag and trying to fix his pillows, which is dangerous because Montag is currently hiding the book, namely the Bible, under his pillow. And this is the point where Mildred starts to realize it. Beatty continues, The zipper displaces the button, and a man lacks just that much time to think while dressing at dawn, a philosophical hour and thus a melancholy hour. Life becomes one big pratfall, Montag. Everything bang, buff, and wow. Even the little moments, the times that we can't avoid thinking about things, the time spent in the shower, the time spent going to the bathroom, the time putting on clothes in the morning, Beattie is emphasizing this is also a part of the equation here. Society is filling every nook and cranny of human life, and those nooks and crannies used to be the places where people reflected where people thought about their situation, where people tried to reach for the big answers at the end of the world. All that idea of going to bed and lying awake, thinking about the problems of the day, to some degree, Bradbury is suggesting that that was healthy, that that was necessary, that that was an important part of being a person. But Beatty knows this is simultaneously unpleasant, a melancholy hour, and also dangerous dangerous to the fabric of society. People who think behave unpredictably, and therefore shouldn't be allowed to go on thinking. That society fills that time up, be it with 
replacing buttons with zippers and therefore putting your pants on faster, just seconds less of having to think about things, or alternatively, by keeping the seashell radio in your ear while you go take your shower or sit on the bat on the toilet. Like, that is all time that would have been spent thinking, now spent just swallowing more of what the world has to offer. Going more and more about your life without having to worry about anything. Letting the world just stomp all over the time you would normally spend reflecting. Empty the theaters, save for clowns, and furnish the rooms with glass walls and pretty colors running up and down the walls like confetti or blood or sherry or sotern. You like baseball, don't you, Montag? Baseball's a fine game. Now Beatty was almost invisible, a voice somewhere behind a screen of smoke. Beatty went on as if nothing had happened, even as Mildred is discovering the book. You like bowling, don't you, Montag? Bowling, yes. And golf? Golf is a fine game. Basketball? A fine game. Billiards? Pool? Football? Fine games, all of them. More sports for everyone. Group spirit. Fun. And you don't have to think, eh? Organize and organize and super organize. Super, super sports. More cartoons and books. More pictures. The mind drinks less and less. Impatience. Highways full of crowds going somewhere, 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 nowhere. The gasoline refugee. Towns turn into motels. People in nomadic surges from place to place. Following the moon tides. Living tonight in the room where you slept this noon and I the night before. Now let's take up the minorities in our civilization, shall we? Bigger the population, the more minorities. Don't step on the toes of the dog lovers, the cat lovers, doctors, lawyers, merchants, chiefs, Mormons, Baptists, Unitarians, second-generation Chinese, Swedes, Italians, Germans, Texans, Brooklynites, Irishmen, people from Oregon or Mexico. The people in this book, this play, this TV serial are not meant to represent any actual painters, cartographers, mechanics, anywhere. The bigger your market, Montag, the less you handle controversy. Remember that. All the minor, minor minorities with their navels to be kept clean. Authors, full of evil thoughts, lock up your typewriters. They did. Magazines became a nice blend of vanilla tapioca. Books, so the damned snobbish critic said, were dishwater. No wonder books stopped selling, the critic said. But the public, knowing what it wanted, spinning happily, let the comic book survive. And the three-dimensional sex magazines, of course. There you have it, Montag. It didn't come from the government down. There was no dictum, no declaration, no censorship to start with, no. Technology, mass exploitation, and minority pressure carried the trick, thank God. Today, thanks to them, you can stay happy all the time. You are allowed to read comics, the good old confessions, or trade journals. Alright, there's a lot to unpack there, and I read a lot, and probably should have unpacked it more as we went. So first off, we're attacking sports. We like sports. Sports help us to not think. Sports occupy our time, give us something to be invested in, something to be emotional about, and yet at the same time something inconsequential, something uncontroversial. Let people argue till they're blue in the face about the new quarterback for the Steelers or the, whether or not the base, the lineup for the Yankees is going to be competitive this year. Like, by all means, keep those fantasy football leagues coming. That is a great way to count people to undestructively and unthreateningly spend all of their time. Let them argue about sports statistics until they're blue in the face. Better that than philosophy and literature. But we go on. Let them play sports as well. Let that be the focus of their energy. Let them get all of that frustration and tension out in some way that our society continue, considers constructive. 
Now, on some level, I think Bradbury is not interested in attacking, like, the nature of sport altogether. Like, act athletic activity is not what he's challenging. What he is challenging is the ubiquity of these things, the conformity of these things. The fact that everybody expects you to be knowledgeable about certain sports teams, and that this becomes the safe center of conversation, the safe place where you can have a discussion. Now, I admittedly have never gotten into sports that deeply. Like, the most that I ever was like connected to any sport whatsoever is back when I was in high school. Uh, my dad is a huge Steelers fan, so I kept up with the games in order and kept up with what was going on there. But for the life of me, if I knew more names than just Troy Palomalu and Jerome Bettis, like, then, you know, that would have shocked me. I never understood the mechanics of the game on some deep level. I never got invested in the, the draft. I never got invested in, you know, the, the fantasy football thing. But I recognized the appeal. On some level, I disagree with Bradbury about the potential danger offered by sports. But on some level, I also see his point. I recognize that this is a part of this whole mass culture that he is describing here. And notice, that's the key. None of the things that Beatty describes is in itself dangerous or pernicious or even problematic. Like, of course people wanted to be able to keep up with the classics without reading them, because people are, by nature, lazy. Bradbury isn't speaking to some government conspiracy or some evil machination. What he's speaking to is human nature, the way that people are inclined to behave. Like, Bradbury himself did not have a college education. Bradbury educated himself, like he got his high school degree, from what I remember, and then he basically just read every book he wanted to read, and then wrote a whole bunch. Like, that's what fascinated him. He was always passionate about his learning, rather than motivated by some sort of scholarly, overarching, you know, um, secondary goal. Which has honestly given us a lot of very exciting, passionate scholars, although not necessarily rigorous or meticulous scholars. We need both. But what Bradbury is observing here is this ground-level disdain for education, for this kind of real knowledge. What he is seeing here is not any one thing being itself destructive or problematic, but a gradual com combination of all of these things. There are too many people in the world. There are too many people to keep happy. There are too many ideas being considered, and therefore too many ideas that a person has to be familiar with, so we boil them all down just to the talking points, and nobody sees the actual roughness, the grit of any of these philosophies. We all talk about the big themes as though they are irrelevant to us, as though they're just the scholarly discipline, just the Cliff Notes version, just the one-page digest. Give me the plot points, give me the way that I'm supposed to interpret it, and let me not have to do the interpretation for myself. Likewise with sports, this is a perfectly non-threatening, perfectly acceptable mass happiness activity. It is something that allows people to do something without having to think. And if, in fact, thinking is a melancholy pastime, then why wouldn't people take them up on it? What Bradbury is describing is a very natural transition. One that does not come from above, one that is not imposed from without, one that springs up inside every last one of us. We are all tempted to quit thinking. We are all tempted to spend all of our lives just doing what is most gratifying to us, most, most pleasant. 
We would rather fill up our lives with foolishness than face its ugly realities, than have to make difficult decisions, than have to contend with our own ethical responsibilities. We would rather just buy something nice for ourselves, watch something on TV, and go on to whatever the next thing is, with no space in between those moments to have to reflect and consider that we may have made horrible mistakes, that we may be complicit in an engine that is ultimately making other people's lives miserable. Again, something that Montag suddenly realizes when he recognizes that he and his, and, and his culture all play while the rest of the world suffers and works for them. So sports are not the only culprit here. They are just one more manifestation of this mass culture overtaking the possibility of an independent thought. And then lastly, we come to the minorities. And again, this one I've written about pretty extensively, that essay I wrote on Fahrenheit 451, I basically confronted and talked about this passage at long length. Bradbury himself had dealt with this quite a bit even by the time that Fahrenheit 451 was coming out. He was already getting quite a bit of backlash from his uh, way in the middle of the air story in the Martian Chronicles and elsewhere. Um, he had heard plenty of criticism from minorities arguing that it was insensitive or that it was you know, problematic in a variety of ways, and importantly for Bradbury, asking to change it. Bradbury has always drawn the line there. He is perfectly happy with people coming up with different interpretations of his work. I don't think I've ever heard him criticize someone who said that his work was racist or that it was, you know, like, unflattering or, or, or evil in some way. Like, he is happy to criticize both the minority who sees themselves unfairly represented and the KKK member who also sees themselves fair, unfairly represented way in the middle of the air in the same breath. To Bradbury, the issue here isn't representation, it's artistic integrity. He wrote the story. He's not going to change it. You can take it out of the book, I guess, but then what are you doing to the book? What right do you have to decide that you know better than he does how the events of the story are supposed to go? Like, even when Truffaut makes the Fahrenheit 451 movie, Bradbury's response to it was very much along the lines of, you know, a lot of it was really good, and I liked a lot of it, but at the same time, you can't just remove things. You can't take out the mechanical hound or Faber and expect the story to be the same. Like, even, you know, his choice to, to cast both Mildred and Clarice as the same actress, like, Bradbury's like, that's just confusing. Why would you do that? Like, Bradbury doesn't see what the, why Truffaut is making the decisions he does, because Bradbury is not familiar with the artistic sort of milieu that Truffaut is working in. Bradbury isn't a film critic, in short, or for that matter, a director or working in film at all. What Bradbury is upset about is, you changed my story. Something that I made, and that you have no right to touch. And on some level, I can't help but see Bradbury's side on this one. I can't help but appreciate that, to some degree, he should be allowed to say what goes in his stories, and our reaction to him can't be, we'll change it to make it more acceptable. Our reaction has to be, so take it or leave it. If we don't like Bradbury, if we think that he has nothing to offer us, then yeah, leave his books in the gutter and read something else. There's plenty of stuff out there that could fit our sensibilities more. 
That's the whole point of that decolonization exercise. It's an attempt to listen to voices typically underrepresented and start, you know, letting the voices that have been represented and that can be potentially problematic sort of fade away. Let them lie in the gutter ignored. But what Bradbury is saying here is that if we let this sort of fear of other people's opinions decide the agenda for discussion, then we are going to miss out on a lot of literature. Like, I think that he is seeing things a little superficially here. Like, here in the 21st century, in a world where, in fact, there are a lot more black writers and writers from different nationalities and cultures, writers who typically have been underrepresented in the fields of publishing, now that they are finally saying their piece, I can't imagine anything else. Like, the richness of the literary world today is probably greater than it has ever been simply for that reason alone. Uh, we're getting rich, developed insights, philosophical perspectives that we've never appreciated before. And that's great. And that's something that Bradbury totally drops the ball on here. But on the other hand, I think that Bradbury does have a point. Like, as much as we are seeing all of these rich, varied perspectives, a lot of those rich, varied perspectives are kind of superficial. We're not seeing some kind of rich philosophical insight into the, the you know, guiding religion or guiding philosophy of the culture. What we are seeing is a lot of books that kind of wallpaper over a typical romance or a typical, you know, like suburban household story with buzzwords from a different culture. Like, the food they're eating is different from white people food because it's cultural. Like, I've read a lot of sort of, I guess, book club books that profess to be this sort of deep insight into the ways that, you know, Asian American culture works or African American culture works. And really, they are very non-threatening. Like, there are a ton of books out there that are very confrontational, that very much address sort of these core, deep identity issues that, you know, really drive people from outside of this kind of mainstream white perspective. Um, you know, things like Jason Reynolds' Long Way Down or, you know, the works of Octavia Butler, now that I am right in the middle of a bunch of them. Um, we are seeing radically different perspectives from writers overseas and the likes of, you know, the science fiction of Kicks and Lou sort of celebrating Chinese culture. Um, we're seeing, you know, more rich narratives from gay and trans writers. Like, they're out there for sure. But at the same time, the backlash against many of those works that do sort of challenge these assumptions is also really present. You know, I think of the, the short story, you know, I identify as an attack helicopter, and how even in the gay and trans community, this story that a trans woman, I believe, had written was just attacked as though it was a fake, as though it was an attack on their community. You know, instead it was meant to be as this subversive satirical work, and the apparently the harassment was so powerful, so strong, that the writer just repudiated it, tried to remove it from the internet, and as far as I know, hasn't written anything since, and really can you blame them? I haven't actually read the story, specifically because the writer doesn't want it read. Like, it's out there, you can download it, you can read it, but to me, that's a moral transgression on some level. If this person was really this traumatized about it, then I suppose I should respect their wishes. And here, 
This is what Bradbury is getting at. On the one hand, yes, it is important and great that marginalized people have their voices heard. But on the other hand, if those same marginalized people are scared to speak because other voices with differing opinions, whether from their same minority or, else, or elsewhere, will tear them apart, threaten them, harass them, like literally destroy their lives in some cases, that's the horror that Bradbury is pointing to here. And if anything, this is a much darker world in 2022 than Bradbury imagined back in the 50s. The power of minorities to censor is much more dangerous than we necessarily give it credit for. We tend to think that this is all one piece, that a minority who writes a work that reflects their own perspective is the same as a minority who criticizes a work for not representing their perspective or for representing a perspective that is pernicious to that group. And these are inextricably co connected. Like Chinua Achebe writing, you know, uh, Things Fall Apart and Chinua Achebe criticizing Conrad's Heart of Darkness come from the same writer, come from the same motivation, come from the same perspective. But Achebe is careful about the way that he criticizes Heart of Darkness. What he is worried about is his is Heart of Darkness's widespread cultural infiltration. The fact that everybody reads this book. The fact that for a good like 10, 15, maybe 20 years, every high schooler was reading it. It was one of the most widely read books in high school curricula. That was what frightened him. Not that it was you know, itself inherently evil. Achebe honestly compliments uh, Conrad's writing on multiple occasions, even as he criticizes Conrad's worldview. What Achebe is arguing for is not blanket suppression, or that Conrad is doing something routinely evil. What he is saying is our culture's adoption of this one book leads to routine evil. That's a miles worth of difference and miles worth of difference from a Twitter mob ganging up and canceling a writer for a choice that they made because they have deemed it to be offensive. Bradbury's afraid of Twitter mobs. He's not interested in minorities having their, or not being able to have their say. Bradbury wants everybody to write. Bradbury wants everybody to create. Bradbury wants everybody to create poetry, create literature, create books. What he seems to consistently dislike throughout this passage, his bias seems to consistently be against the critics. The damned snobbish critics calling these books dishwasher, dishwater. And on the one hand, Beattie is, and arguably Bradbury, are both defensive of the critics here. They were dishwater. They were terrible. Magazines as vanilla tapioca. Um, like, that's one of my all-time favorite lines from this book. Um, and I use it fairly regularly when I'm talking about, you know, the trashy state of contemporary American literature. Um, what Beatty is saying is that because of that fear, because of the popular suppression of these works, because of the popular demand that these works be uncontroversial, that they do not present ideas that could theoretically threaten or reflect badly on one group or another, because of that critical 
apparatus, because of the people who enjoy jumping down the throats of writers and demanding that they change their work because of some sort of highfalutin moral principle, that's why the books become terrible. That's why the books become dishwater, tapioca. That's what Bradbury is afraid of most here. That's why he is grumpy about their minor minorities, minor, minor minorities, and their navels to be kept clean. And you'll notice he carefully avoids the ones that we tend to think of the most. We, he's not talking about gay people. He is not talking about black people, though those are obviously the two that probably mean the most, even in Bradbury's own day. What he is, he sort of sidesteps that, perhaps cowardly. But it is what it is. That's what Bradbury is afraid of as a writer. And to some degree, he is definitely in the same category of people as, you know, angry, stupid comedians yelling about how every, you know, it's so hard to say PC in this day and age. Like, Bradbury, I think, is guilty of that to some degree. But the main thing that he's arguing against is not political correctness culture. The main thing he is arguing against is the lack of artistic integrity. The lack of being willing to let writers just write. And honestly, I think as much as I am, you know, banging on about Twitter mobs and canceling today, I think we've actually reached a pretty decent spot as far as that's concerned. Like, as much as I am, in fact, afraid of this becoming more powerful than it should be, people do publish stupid, terrible books all the time. Like, nobody is stopping you from selling your racist trash on Amazon, or for that matter, your, you know, homophobic trash, or your trans identity misconstruction trash on Amazon. Anybody can self-publish whatever the hell they want, whenever they want, and you just have to face the consequences, whatever it turns out to be. That's what free speech is supposed to be, according to Bradbury here. Let everybody publish whatever stupid crap they want and let, you know, people read it or not read it as they see. But A, don't throw a fit over it. Just ignore it if it's not speaking to you and maybe caution your friends not to do that. Don't just take it out in the, some kind of public sphere for the pure joy of watching somebody, you know, rue the day that they decided to set pen to paper. Um, Bradbury wants us all to create. Bradbury wants us all to think differently. And Bradbury, especially if his legacy tells us anything, is all about just throwing ideas at the wall to see if they stick. And the fact is, some of them won't. Some of them will suck. Some of them will be racist. Some of them will be superficial. Some of them will be trash. But Bradbury would rather write trash and be hated for it than have you come up and tell him to quit writing trash, or for him to feel like he can't write trash because of the reactions that he anticipates. Let's all just write and make mistakes and talk and discuss and have those conversations and not let it turn into some kind of polemic, some kind of assassination of character. That's what Bradbury hopes for here, at least as I read it in this passage. Yes, but what about the firemen, then? asked Montag. Ah, Beery leaned forward in the faint mist of smoke from his pipe. What more easily explained and natural? With school turning out more runners, jumpers, racers, tinkerers, grabbers, snatchers, flyers, and swimmers, instead of examiners, critics, knowers, and imaginative creators, the word intellectual, of course, became the swear word it deserved to be. You always dread the unfamiliar. 
Surely you remember the boy in your own school class who was exceptionally bright, did most of the reciting and answering while the others sat like so many leaden idols hating him. And wasn't it this bright boy you selected for beatings and tortures after hours? Of course it was. We must all be alike. Not everyone born free and equal, as the Constitution says, but everyone made equal. Each man the image of every other. Then all are happy, for there are no mountains to make them coward, to judge themselves against. So, a book is a loaded gun in the house next door. Burn it. Take the shot from the weapon. Breach man's mind. Who knows who might be the target of the well-read man? Me? I won't stomach them for a minute. And so when houses were finally fireproofed completely all over the world, you were correct in your assumption the other night, there was no longer need of firemen for the old purposes. They were given the new job as custodians of our peace of mind, the focus of our understandable and rightful dread of being inferior. Official censors, judges, and executioners. That's you, Montag, and that's me. I can't help but think of Vonnegut's Harrison Bergeron here in this paragraph. This idea of everyone being made equal. The idea of the intelligent, smart, examining student being shouted down and beaten after hours. Like, I had always managed to avoid that despite being an absolutely insufferable prick when I was in elementary school and was smarter than everybody else and knew it and absolutely answered all the questions and won all the awards and the whole thing. Like, I'm surprised I didn't get beaten more often, and half the time the only reason I did was because I was smart enough to trick other people into fighting my battles for me. So, again, I was just so much of an asshole when I was in grade school. But suffice it to say, I see the logic here. I see the fear here. Like, Beatty presents a world that I think Bradbury is more afraid of than, you know, interested in. And I don't think that Beatty presents a terribly compelling argument for his vision of the future. Instead, what he describes is a historical development, indifferently. Beatty doesn't seem to have an investment in this story either way. Beatty sort of, even ironically, emphasizes this about how, you know, this smart person is singled out for beatings. Because think about it. The fact that Beatty knows this, and ha he's literally emphasized at the beginning of this speech, only the fire chiefs know this stuff anymore, that means that he was that kid at one point. He used to be the bright person. He used to be the remarkably smart person. And he has chosen, willingly, to now be the enforcer of this conformity. To be the one that stresses and enforces this ignorance. In another interview, uh, Bradbury talks about how he ultimately was asked to write a play of Fahrenheit 451, and in it, he brought all these characters back and let them develop new scenes for themselves, and one of them is Beatty taking Montag to his house, where Beatty shows him that, Mon that Beatty has shelf after shelf of books, that he owns them all, and that he just never reads them, and therefore is guilty of no crime. Beatty used to care deeply about this stuff, and has been turned from it for reasons that we'll see in the next section. And as a consequence, Beatty is the most dangerous person of all in this novel. He is the one who tasted of this brilliant world of writing and thinking that Bradbury teases. These deep quotes from great works of literature, Beatty knows them all and can quote them all, as we'll see. But he's chosen to get rid of them because he realizes that they are, in fact, this threatening. We'll get his compelling argument on that front later. Here, he just notices, so if we've got a culture that hates these books, hates these ideas, 
then we're only one step away from that culture demanding that the government enforce what they have already willed. Demanding a structure of violence to enforce this ignorance, i.e. they call for the destruction of the books. They vote for it. They go to the polls and they say, I want every copy of the Bible burned. That's the horror here. That's what makes this dystopia so compelling to me. It's not the burning. It's not the censorship. The censorship is so secondary here. It's the fact that all of these people willfully go to the polls and tell their representatives, burn the books, destroy them. I don't want them. I don't want to feel inferior to the guy who has read all those books. I don't want to listen to the person who has read all those books. I do not recognize their authority and in fact resent the authority they claim to hold over me. I can tell you from experience, if you go to a party and try and strike up a conversation about, you know, some book you've read, people will just turn off. They don't want to hear it. They would much rather talk about themselves, much rather talk about their own accomplishments, much rather talk about their own perspectives on something that matters to them, be it car maintenance or whoever is winning the, the World Series these days, or just showing off you know, their new car or their RV or some new thing that they bought for their house. They would much rather hear that than any of the so-called interesting things that distract me all day long. And on some level, I do resent them for that. I get mad about it. I feel dirty when I am just sitting at some general social engagement and I'm forced to sort of dump myself down and care about something that really I don't care about. But at the same time, I recognize that's what they're doing too. I don't give a shit about, you know, the New York Jets. And they don't give a shit about Homer's Iliad. And neither of us can communicate to the other why you should care about the thing that I personally care about. It's a really tough balance to strike in a world where so many people can be interested in so many different things. And really, what ammunition do I have here? How can I, in the course of 15 minutes, explain to a person why a good classical education is worthwhile when they're happy? How do you argue against that? How does beauty, or rather, how does Montag to beauty? You must understand, Beatty goes on, that our civilization is so vast that we can't have our minorities upset and stirred. Ask yourself, what do we want in this country above all? People want to be happy. Isn't that right? Haven't you heard it all your life? I want to be happy, people say. Well, aren't they? Don't we keep them from moving? Don't we give them fun? That's all we live for, isn't it? For pleasure, for titillation? And you must admit, our culture provides plenty of ease. Colored people don't like Little Black Sambo. Burn it. White people don't feel good about Uncle Tom's Cabin. Burn it. Someone's written a book on tobacco and cancer of the lungs. The cigarette people are weeping. Burn the book. Serenity, Montag. Peace, Montag. Take your fight outside. Better yet, into the incinerator. Funerals are unhappy and pagan. Eliminate them, too. Five minutes after a person is dead, he's on his way to the big flu. The incinerator is serviced by helicopters all over the country. Ten minutes after death, a man's a speck of black dust. Let's not quibble over individuals with memoriams. Forget them. Burn all. Burn everything. Fire is bright and fire is clean. It was a girl next door, Montag said slowly. She's gone now, I think. Dead. I can't even remember her face, but she was different. How... how did she happen? Beatty smiled. Here or there, that's bound to occur. Clarice McClellan, we've a record on her family. We've watched them carefully. 
Heredity and environment are funny things. You can't rid yourself of all the odd ducks in just a few years. The home environment can undo a lot you try to do at school. That's why we've lowered the kindergarten age year after year until now we're almost snatching them from the cradle. We had some false alarms on the McClellans when they lived in Chicago. Never found a book. Uncle had a mixed record. Antisocial. The girl? She was a time bomb. The family had been feeding her subconscious, I'm sure, from what I saw of her school record. She didn't want to know how a thing was done, but why? That can be embarrassing. You ask why to a lot of things, and you wind up very unhappy indeed if you keep at it. The poor girl's better off dead. Notice Beattie's argument here. Clarice represents this other world to Montag, and Montag sees reality in Clarice that he doesn't in his own society. And Beattie dismisses her out of hand. And the argument that he presents is kind of compelling. Happiness is what Beattie enforces. Happiness is what Beattie protects. He realizes most people don't want to be thinking, don't want to be dwelling on unhappy things. And so you burn the things that make them unhappy. And notice, the books are definitely one example, and once again we get the sort of inclusion of minorities here. But also, importantly, notice that it's funerals that he points to. Montag's own encounter with mortality in the person of Mildred's attempted suicide is what drove him to this place in the first place. Mortality has to be done away with in this society, so they do. No more funerals. As soon as the person's dead, ship them off to some big incinerator and so everyone forgets them immediately. And notice, it took that long for Clarice and her death to be realized by Montag. He just, she just disappeared, and he didn't know why or where. She was just gone, and he can't explain it. Once again, he's faced with mortality when, in fact, Mildred reveals, oh yeah, she's dead, I thought I had told you about it before. But that's what that big question that Montag has to confront. If I can borrow some Heidegger here, this idea that mortality forces us to confront all of those deep questions about our reality forces us to think, to become philosophical, and indeed a melancholy pastime that. What we are dealing with here is a society that has managed to strike out everything that reminds us of our own mortality, that keeps us constantly active so we can constantly forget that we are going to die. Just makes it a complete non-issue. So Beatty says she was a time bomb. She was doomed to unhappiness because her family dwelt on this mortality. And on the one hand, we have Montag's own observations. The fact that they do, in fact, have real conversations at McClellan's household. The fact that her uncle and aunt really do seem to care about each other. The fact that Clarice herself knows about things that used to matter. Porch swings and dandelions. Love and, indeed, happiness. Clarice herself, though, was probably going to be unhappy. Certainly in a society that refused to acknowledge her. Like, how could she ever be fulfilled in a world where only a handful of people could care about her? Like, everybody else is so caught up in their own, you know, racing, 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 and never thinking about death that they never can actually care about another person. Why would anyone want to live in this world? In some way, beauty is right that she would be unhappy, that she was a time bomb, that she was likely going to make herself and everyone around her miserable. I mean, she's done this to Montag. Montag has woken up from his, you know, socially induced slumber. 
And now she's dead. And Beatty says she's better off dead. Now we might say, what is the point of living if you can't feel those things? We're inclined to think this. Bradbury is pushing us to think this. The way that Beatty's callousness comes off here suggests that even he doesn't believe it 100%, that he's just saying the words and playing devil's advocate for a devil that he has long since stopped worshipping. But the point that we're seeing here is there is something so enticing about it, something so tempting, something so dangerous. We need to face these problems for anything in our lives to be real. We need to turn off the TV from time to time and just deal with our own awful, horrible shit. Luckily, queer ones like her don't happen often, Beanie continues. We know how to nip most of them the bud early. You can't build a house without nails and wood. If you don't want a house built, hide the nails and wood. If you don't want a man unhappy politically, don't give him two sides to a question to worry him. Give him one. Better yet, give him none. Let him forget that there is such a thing as war. If the government is inefficient, top-heavy, and tax-mad, better it be all those than the people worry over it. Peace, Montag. Give the people contests they win by remembering the words of more popular songs, the names of state capitals, or how much corn Iowa grew last year. Cram them full of non-combustible data. Chock them so damned full of facts they need they feel stuffed, but absolutely brilliant with information. Then they'll feel their thinking. They'll get a sense of motion without moving. And they'll be happy, because facts of that sort don't change. Don't give them any slippery stuff like philosophy or sociology to chai things up with. That way lies melancholy. Any man who can take a TV wall apart and put it back together again, and most men can nowadays, is happier than any man who tries to slide, rule, measure, and equate the universe, which just won't be measured or equated without making man feel bestial and lonely. I know! I've tried! To hell with it! So bring on your clubs and parties, your acrobats and magicians, your daredevils, jet cars, motorcycle helicopters, your sex and heroin, more of everything to do with automatic reflex. If the drama is bad, if the film says nothing, if the play is hollow, sting me with the theremin, loudly. I, I'll think I'm responding to the play when it's only a tactile reaction to vibration, but I don't care. I just like solid entertainment. Beatty has sworn it all off. And notice that last note. Fill them with non-combustible data. Fill them with facts and figures, verifiable scientific information. On some level, I see this happening today as well. And especially with the Democrats, if I can be perfectly blunt. Oftentimes, we are presented with data as though that is all we need to know, as though that speaks for itself, as though we don't need to consider the ramifications of the data, just, you know, there is this huge income inequality, and therefore the rich need to be eaten. And I think that, too, is superficial and extremely reductive and very much working to keep us from thinking. Democrat or Republican, Christian or atheist, both sides, in every case, are guilty of what Bradbury is pointing to here. All of us are trying to avoid thinking, and all of us are so tempted to just stop, to let us just give up, to let there be only one side to an issue. I don't need to listen to what the Republicans have to say because they are led by a tyrannical dictator and run by this media enterprise that indoctrinates the people who listen to it. Or alternatively, I don't need to listen to Democrats because they are led by a cabal of greedy hypocrites and they are indoctrinated by a media empire that is convincing them that thing, an unreality is true. 
both sides of our culture believe this today. Both of us are determined to see only one side to a political issue, as though there isn't a conversation to be had. And yeah, the Democrat side is way better than the Republicans at this particular moment. There are way fewer lies on that side. But the inclination, the impulse, the effort to appeal to our emotions and not our intelligence is across the board. The indoctrination is happening both ways. Thinking is still an enemy, even today. I must be going, Beanie concludes. Lecture's over. I hope I've clarified things. The important thing for you to remember, Montag, is we're the happiness boys, the Dixie duo, you and I and the others. We stand against the small tide of those who want to make everyone unhappy with conflicting theory and thought. We have our fingers in the dike. Hold steady. Don't let the torrent of melancholy and drear philosophy drown our world. We depend on you. I don't think you realize how important you are, we are, to our happy world as it stands now. Beanie frames himself and Montag as heroes, standing against this tide of thinking, this, these few miserable people who are insisting on making everybody else miserable with them. And again, I'm not sure how much Beauty buys this. We'll have questions, especially in the next lecture. But at the very least, this is quite the pep talk. Bradbury is showing us this doomed, damned, totally in unthinking world and showing us how this might be presented as desirable, heroic even. How the people who just go out and entertain, who stop everybody from thinking, are themselves heroes in their own right. And Beatty concludes at last. One last thing. At least once in his career, every fireman gets an itch. What do the books say, he wonders. Oh, to scratch that itch, huh? Well, Montag, take my word for it. I've had to read a few in my time to know what I was about. The books say nothing. Nothing you can teach or believe. They're about non-existent people, figments of imagination if they're fiction. And if they're non-fiction, it's worse. One professor calling another an idiot, one philosopher screaming down another's gullet. All of them running about, putting out the stars and extinguishing the sun. You come away lost. Well then, Montag asks, what if a fireman accidentally, really not intending anything, takes a book home with him? A natural error. Curiosity alone, said Beauty. We don't get over it anxious or mad. We let the fireman keep the book 24 hours. If he hasn't burned it by then, we simply come burn it for him. Of course. Montag's mouth was dry. Well, Montag, will you take another later shift today? Will we see you tonight, perhaps? I don't know, said Montag. What? I'll be in later, maybe. We'd certainly miss you if you didn't show, said Beauty, putting his pipe in his pocket thoughtfully. I'll never come in again, thought Montag. Get well and keep well, said Beauty. He turned and went out through the open door. Beatty ends with a threat here. You can read the book, he says, but then burn it, or we'll come and burn it for you. When Montag says, maybe I'll come in later, Beatty insists, get well and keep well. Being well in this world is itself dangerous. Being happy, as Bradbury presents it, is being ignorant, and therefore lying to yourself. 
willfully ignorant. I've had a lot of conversations, especially with my ethics students this year, about whether or not ignorance is bliss, as the saying goes, about how rationality can interfere with our own happiness and pleasure. I think Bradbury is kind of suggesting here that pleasure is overrated, that there is something inherently unsatisfying about it, that happiness, at least as we understand it here in the American 21st century, is kind of empty. And that if you let it sort of take over your life, you, like Mildred, will end up dead or worse. So miserable that you're not even willing to admit your own misery to yourself. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. The greater danger we'll see later. Because there is a greater danger to this willful ignorance, to this total indifference to the world going on around us. We've seen the hints those radio broadcasts talking about war coming up. Being without thought, being without reflection, being without awareness of our own mortality will in fact cause more harm than good. Again, Bradbury said this was a book about television. In some way, I think this is a book about happiness. Again, not the Aristotelian happiness, eudaimonia, but superficial happiness. The happiness that makes the world go round in this day and age. A happiness fed by consumerism and mass media. Bradbury is saying that there is probably no more dangerous thing out there than that kind of happiness. Nothing more tempting, nothing more compelling, nothing more desirable, and nothing more damning. We are meant to be unhappy. We are designed that way. And we will be better people if we are at least a little bit unhappy. We also might be a little bit more happy, if that makes sense. The brute contentedness that is being described in this world doesn't seem to come with a lot of the joys that life is supposed to have. We don't have love here. We don't have meaningful conversations. We don't have revelations here. We just have distraction, perpetual and constant. A bottom level, lowest common denominator happiness, and not a real happiness that informs and enervates and creates. These people are diseased, weak, broken, and they have no solution because all of the tools that would help them to get there would at some point make them unhappy, which they are too terrified to undertake. That's why they're burned. That's why they're destroyed. Not by some government, not because of some, you know, pernicious material or, in some cases, controversial issues, so much as the fact that they make us think and therefore make us unhappy. It's a complicated problem, and one that I don't presume to be able to answer here. Nor does Bradbury, for that matter. Bradbury just cares about books, and he wants to protect them, just as he wants to protect the ideas enshrined in them, no matter how controversial, no matter how contradictory, no matter how potentially destructive those ideas may be. Let them all write. Let us all say our piece, no matter how dumb, 
no matter how wrong. And hopefully, at the very least, we'll have a bunch of people trying to figure out which is which. For next time, we finish Fahrenheit 451, and we see the actual consequences of our happy little world here, um, which is possibly even more bleak than the Martian Chronicles turned out to be. Um, so we'll discuss Montag's search for Faber and the conclusion of that search. We'll be actually meet Faber, we'll be threatened by the Mechanical Hound, and we'll get Beatty's Manifesto, all of which I'm very much looking forward to talking about with you next time. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing, and as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.